Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat. I'm here with my brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. All right. Still not old. We still love that. We still love that shtick. Yeah. Um, this is the the podcast that we have irreverently referred to. How about wow. I tried, I tried, I tried irreverently. to work irreverently, okay. and then I butchered it. So that's how <laughs> I roll. But this is what we call, this is not church, um, where we have unchurchy conversations about church. And, and really what it, what it amounts to is just having the audacity to ask some questions, right? Um, that's what got most of us labeled heretics in the first place anyways, because we had the temerity to say, uh, wh- what the hell is going on with that? And so we ask a lot of questions and we love to have people on who are people who ask questions. And so we are, we are delighted to have actually three guests today. This is our first attempt at what I have recently called a triple threat. And these, these three authors have combined to write a book called After Jesus Before Christianity. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, make sure I got the name. I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember the name of the book, and it's not in front of me. I have your bio here, and I want your bios. There's three folks here that I want to introduce you to. I'm going to do my best to get through their bios, and we're gonna we're gonna jump headfirst into all kinds of conversations. So, first, uh, Dr. Aaron Verncombe is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, appointed to the office of dean. She received her PhD in a collaborative program at the University of Toronto between the Department for Study of Religion and the Ann Tannenbaum Center for Jewish Studies. She's a specialist in writing instruction. Aaron has worked for five years as a faculty member of the Princeton Writing Program at Princeton University and is currently designing a program for the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto that will ease the transition to university-level writing for incoming undergraduate students. Her research specialty is the social origins and histories of Jesus movements in the first centuries of the Common Era, with a particular focus on practices of dress. Uh, second, we have Bernard Brandon Scott. He's the author and editor of many books, including The Real Paul, Recovering His Radical Challenge, and The Trouble with Resurrection. He's a charter member of the Jesus Seminar. He's the chair of Westar's newly established Christianity Seminar. He served as the chair of the Bible and Ancient and Modern Media section of the Society of Biblical Literature, as well as a member of several SBL seminars, including the Parable Seminar, and Historical Jesus Seminar. He holds AB from St. Mainrad. Main, oh my goodness. How do you say that, sir? Just Mainrad? Skip, <laughs> skip it. Yeah, <laughs> an skip MA it. from Miami. He says skip it. I love it, man. An MA from Miami University and a PhD from Vanderbilt. Hey, I can say Vanderbilt. <laughs> That's what I know. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. You guys are just too accomplished. That's the problem. My bio is about three sentences. So that's it. this is all on you guys for just being so, so accomplished. Uh, lastly, but not leastly, <laughs> you like that, John? I, did, I made it yeah, an adverb. Yeah. Lastly, but not yeah, leastly. Not leastly. <laughs> we have Hal Tossing. He's a recently retired as professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He lectures around the country and the world. The editor of the award-winning A New Testament in 2013, a United Methodist minister and author of 14 books. His mediography includes the New York Times, Time Magazine, The Daily Show, People Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, National Public Radio, The Brian Lair Show on WNYC, The Bob Edwards Show on Sirius Radio, The History Channel, and The Washington Post. So, you know, just a, you know, just a couple things here and there. Huh, guys, welcome to the show, all you guys. Thanks for coming. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. This is going to be a challenge. This is a bit like wrangling three, you know, like enormously intelligent people and uh, trying to do so with the, uh, I, the combined IQ of, I think, about a fourth grader. What do you think, John? You and me, uh, yeah, combine, <laughs> combine. Well, yeah, and that's I, actually giving a lot of credit to the fourth grader. I'm just saying, I'm yeah, not, yeah. not that was not meant to disparage fourth graders. <laughs> um, but so, I don't know who uh, who might want to chime in first. I'm just going to lob this question out. This book that you've written attempts to sort of discuss what happens between the, the time of Jesus's death and resurrection and the and the, the, I guess, the official formation of the religion of Christianity. So we have 200 years or so there where, you know, we, we, we really can't call what happens there a religion, right? I mean, it's, it's a, various movements, all kinds of things that ha- have all kinds of different names. And so I just, if you could just say it better than I just did, um, <laughs> what exactly we're doing here. Well, you know, first thing is that uh, not only do, do we not think that the, the people of those first 200 years were Christian, they didn't call themselves Christian. Okay. 
so then uh, what might they have called themselves? I mean, that, that, that's one of the principal parts of like your first of the first part of that book is all right, what, what kinds of, what kinds of descriptors did they use for themselves? I think, yeah, just to put that in, in a bit more context, that was one of our questions as well. And, and we really approached this book from the perspective of, of questioning, just being really curious, especially being curious about the things that we think that we know, these things that we think that we've known for a really long time, the story that we've told ourselves about what Christianity is and how we developed. With the Christianity seminar at uh, the Western Institute, we really wanted to go back and, and try to to start from the beginning as much as possible without knowing what we know now. I mean, obviously, we know what we know now about right. Christianity, but instead of reading ourselves backwards into Christian history, we wanted to see if, if we could read it forwards, not making any assumptions about what was going to happen in the future, not making assumptions, for example, about what we think the word Christian means. So that's really where this project began. Right. Yeah, that was an, in, an interesting distinction that you made in the introduction, I believe it was, where we talked about that, that idea of like starting with the conclusion and working backwards, right? And reading that history into almost an, an inevitability. This is what it became, so therefore it had to become this rather than looking forward. That, that had to be a challenge, though, um, I would think, to, to try and, as objectively as possible, look at this material without the knowledge of how, how this does inevitably sort of wrap up, right? I mean, the, the challenge would be, how do I look at this and see it within its context and not try to interpose, you know, stuff that I already know, right? For sure, yeah. And that's where we really wanted to be careful with the evidence that we were using, um, when we did our research and, uh, and the, ki- the kinds of evidence we were using and, and how we were using it. So, for example, we, we still use a lot of writings that we're familiar with today, uh, writings that now appear in what we call the New Testament. Of course, there was no New Testament in the first two centuries. And we, we wanted to decenter those writings that have found privilege across time so that we could hear other voices, other writings that were popular, just as popular as many of the, as many of the writings we know today, and put them side by side, you know, looking, re-looking at the evidence, at the writings, looking at other forms of evidence, archaeology, uh, inscriptions. I don't, Hal and Brandon, do you want to weigh in on that? I, I think the important thing to, to really kind of focus on is the folks living in this period didn't know how things were going to turn out. Right. Uh, and that's the point of view you have to kind of take. So once you begin to realize that, you begin to see they're feeling their way through this stuff. They don't have some predetermined outcome. They're not even sure how it gets started. Uh, I mean, it's they're in the midst of it. Uh, and when you're in the midst of something, in many ways, you're kind of flailing around. You're experimenting, seeing what will work, what won't work. And, and you get a lot of that that, you know, that really forces them uh, to figure out what's going on. But they don't end up with one set position. They end up with a whole variety of positions and practices. The other side of this question is, what did they call themselves? Well, they called themselves a whole variety of things. Saints was one of the titles they used for their groups, you know, brothers and sisters. We think of those as not the names of the groups, but that's actually how it functioned for many of these people as kind of the name. They also thought of themselves as some way belonging to Israel. That is very important in these first two centuries that, you know, how do they belong to Israel and in what way do they belong to Israel? That's a really key issue for these folks. Um, yeah. And that goes back to the fact that Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> and and right. Jesus, you know, they, they understand Jesus as a crucified Messiah. So that also ties into this whole kind of understanding of Israel, which becomes very fundamental for their own self-understanding. So they don't have to ask, who are we? They kind of know who they are. Well, we belong to the tradition of Israel, and we're trying to figure it out within that tradition. Yeah, it seems like they were less concerned about about labeling themselves um, than others were concerned about labeling them. Yeah. Of course, and there was really no it there. Right. They all were very happy to be their local groups. 
that had their own character and were different than some of the other people that were related to Jesus. So what they did say, by and large, was, yes, we belong to the people of Israel. But the people of Israel at that time also were barely a unity. Right, right. And and so this, these are people who are very comfortable with being different than one another. It's very different than this kind of orthodoxy of the way Christian landed, Christianity landed eventually. And that was, it's just fine for us to be different. Right. Well, and it seems too like they, you know, the, the sort of, I hate to say, I hate to say modern because I don't know, it's, it's maybe the Western popularized version of Christianity sees itself as a clean break from Judaism. All right. Like this is, and then, and I don't see that historically that that was the case, you know, that there was not this jettisoning of their entire history to now embrace something entirely new. I think they would have seen themselves as very much in part of that tradition, right? Especially the Jewish believers. Yes. To the point that when these people talk about scripture, they mean what we call the Old Testament. Right, they would have right. never thought of it as old. That's scripture. Right, right. So it, it's when you start to call something New Testament versus Old Testament, that's where you get the split. That, yeah. is, that is a big signal of this break. Yeah, and it seems like uh, it, it's, it, it always cracks me up that, you know, those are, you know, there are folks who, who love to, to, to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. And, you know, I always want to know what, well, what, what Scriptures are you talking about? Because there is a, <laughs> there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff there that you've left out, you know, through the, and we, we could get into the whole process of canonization and how that all came to be. And, you know, and I'm like, I don't know how you ever arrive at a place where you think any of that stuff rises to the level of inerrancy and perfection when just the process to select everything was so convoluted sometimes. To talk about what we know about the process of canonization would take you about two minutes. We don't know much. <laughs> right. <That's, laughs> yeah, I've, I've gotten that impression. As a historian, yeah, the canon more or less appears in the 4th and 5th century. There's, yeah. there's no working it out. That's an illusion. It just kind of is there. It's what the big churches did. Right. So there was, there's, there wasn't like a secretary in the room taking notes, talking about how all the conversations went and so-and-so argued for inclusion of, of revelation, but so-and-so did not. And there wasn't so any it's all room. just a big, and mainly because most of them didn't read or write. Right. Yeah. Right. See that? Yeah. And it always struck me as it was more political backroom dealing. If there were rooms, they were backrooms somewhere where they were, <laughs> where, you know, there were sort of shady deals going on to see what was going to happen there. But uh, somebody, uh, the point was made, and I, and I think this is an important jumping off point for us, about not so much, I guess, the important part about, about what the early Christians called themselves depended on how they perceived of Jesus, didn't it? And the titles that they gave him. And there was a point made about the difference between translation and transliteration yeah. Yeah. that I thought was an interesting point that I think our listeners are really would really get a lot out of to see how does that transliteration of Jesus, of, of Christ or of Jesus, move us into a place where we begin to see his, that figure way even differently than, than maybe it was intended. And I'm not sure who might want to jump on that one. If you look at it in the simplest form, Christos in Greek is a translation of the Hebrew. And right. it, it means oiled, literally. So you could actually say, Jesus, the oily one, if you were being literal. Uh, I always, people who want to be literalist are never literalist. Right. Uh, so, and that's, that's a translation of the Hebrew Misha, which is a transliteration of Messiah in English. So that, this all right. gets complicated <laughs> quick. But in the Greek, it means Jesus the anointed or Jesus the Jewish Messiah. You could, that would be a good translation of Christos into English. So you would have in your, but when you say Jesus Christ, it becomes his last name. Right. Or it becomes a title that you can make it mean whatever you want to make it. Most of my students, when I taught New Testament, I would ask them, what do you think Christ means? And they would say it means Jesus is God. Well, it never had anything like that meaning you know, at all in the first two centuries. So that's a complete substitute. Uh, so, so the transliteration plays havoc with a lot of our understandings. How is 
done lots of work on the bathing and stuff. So you translate baptizo as, if you transliterate it as baptism, it becomes a sacrament. If you translate it as bathing, that's something you do with your neighbors in the ancient world. So just the translation versus transliteration gives you a whole new view about what's going on uh, in this period. Yeah, I found that one interesting. Um, When you guys, uh, in the book, it it says you, you could say it as, Instead of John the Baptist, you could he could be called John the Bather, right? Right, and that and that and that completely changes what you what your your outlook, your view of of that person. But my my question on the word Christian is this, uh, and I, I we talked a little bit before we started recording about something that I, I know Nat and I have both heard, and it's not mentioned in this book. So I'm wondering if we have been misinformed. Is what I, I want to get to is. The, the way we were, I was told that the, the word Christian came about was it was a derogatory word that the Romans used towards these followers of Jesus, meaning little Christ, and that we then took it as a badge of honor. And then we move forward in this idea of being calling ourselves little Christ or Christians. It's not, I don't see that mentioned at all in the book. So is this, is this a misinformation that we have been told in church kind of over and over again? No, you're on a, you're on the right track, but okay. um, you, it actually is in the book. Um, and we quote the whole, we, we've got an, an interrogation in the book about that from the Roman side. Okay. Um, and so you're on the right track. But the thing about that is just to notice that in the entire New Testament, which doesn't even exist at that time, but eventually, only three times out of 180,000 words do they use the word Christian. So you can't, just because you know that, is not at all helpful in the first two centuries because most of these people aren't even thinking about that word. Right, so we find it in where we, I remember we we find, you you hear the word, you see the word Christian in the book of Acts, right? Twice in the book of Acts and and, and once in in, um, 1 Peter. Right, so... And that, that, that to me is striking, you know, when, when, uh, cause when John and I push back sometimes, cause I, John no longer identifies as Christian. I'm toying with, I don't, I don't actually care one way or the other to, to identify one way or the other. It's, it's a word that, you know, again, from my 21st century mindset carries enough baggage with it that I can see the utility of saying, eh, I could, I could let it go or whatever. But to see how, how, um, how strongly people hold on to it and get defensive of it. When you say, well, I don't know, I no longer identify as that, it's striking how little it appears in scripture. Um, it didn't seem that that was anything that we were ever necessarily supposed to attach ourselves to some sort of made up moniker. So it's, yeah, three times in, in, in the entire New Testament, right? Doesn't, I mean, as opposed to how many times the word Jesus appears or how many times the word love appears or some of the other major themes. Jesus is used, is used a thousand and two times. Yeah. Peter, uh, Almost a hundred times, Christian just is not does not hit the the bell even to wake anybody up. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I like it. Well, I just want to add in here: you were partly right and partly wrong about it. Is a Roman bureaucratic term, yeah. And and I think the earliest use is actually in the letters of Pliny. It's earlier than the use in Acts. Okay, and in that case, was it a pejorative in in general? I mean, pejorative. Yeah, probably. It's a nickname. And it's, yeah, okay. you know, even Maybe like a sort of a, a diminution. I'm like, hey, just those little right. guys. Are, like, like, we don't take I these guys seriously. It means little Christ. That's no, that, yeah, that part of what you said is wrong. What the word, I always object. How many times is Christian used in the New, in the New Testament? Zero, because they didn't speak English. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair Chris, enough. Fair enough. Christianos is used three times. And what that word means is not Christian. It means adherent of the Messiah. Right. So it has a political connotation to it. And right. that's, that's what, what I was going to ask you about. That's what the Romans are objecting to. That, that, yeah, because if we talk about what, what, if anything, got the attention of the Roman Empire, it had to have been any challenge to their authority. You know, anybody, anybody see, being seen as a rival entity, right? So them... So them calling themselves adherents to this thing, and then in some respect referring to Christ as Lord or King or or something of that nature, 
I imagine that would have gotten them in more trouble than claiming he was God. They wouldn't have given a rip, you know, if, I mean, they had another God in their pantheon. The world was full of gods. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's important to note that, that it was a term where we find it that tended to be used by others rather than by the adherents of the groups themselves. And, and the letter from... So Pliny was a, a governor. He was a, a political official, and, and he writes to the emperor Trajan in the first century because he's seeing more and more of these people who Pliny calls Christian, um, and he doesn't know what to do with them. He feels like they should potentially be punished because they're starting to cause some trouble, but they're kind of an unruly and, and messy variety of, of groups of people. So he writes to the Roman emperor to, to get some advice. And he uses this word Christiani, which he does not translate into Latin. He's writing into Latin. He uses the Greek term. And, and I think that's really key in our understanding of this word and, and how it is used. The fact that this Roman official doesn't translate the word into Latin. He preserves it as a Greek term which we think signals that he's he's trying to to show the it, it's a foreign sounding word it's it's connected with what what he would call superstition in the the Roman context and it preserves the the otherness of these groups they're connected to the people of Israel who continue to be a rebellious people so there's that political overtone and there's that that othering uh, other tone and undertone in the word as well. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to there's a lot to chew on there. Um, well, before we go too much farther down the rabbit hole, too, I did want to also mention to our listeners that 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 this uh, um, this entity, this group of people who have gotten together to write this book, have come out of the tradition of the Jesus Seminar. So, uh, if you're familiar with that at all, I, my my familiarity with uh, with the Jesus Seminar started in college. I've told the story once before, but it's I think it's. It's funny. <laughs> so I'll tell it again. No, I had this, uh, I'd taken a summer course. Um, and I was going to the university, the university of Maryland and I, I took this course cause it sounded interesting. I was a really dyed in the wool sort of right wing evangelical at the time. And, um, there was a, a course taught over the summer on the historical Jesus. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like a good class. I'll take it. And the textbook for the class was the five gospels. And, uh, and also, um, John Dominic Croson's book, uh, the historical Jesus. And man, I hated every bit of that class. And I really, really didn't like this John Dominic Croson guy because he was just taking an ax to the foundation of all the stuff that I thought was really... So we, all of that was to say that fast forward 20 years and I look back on that time as like that was kind of that the seeds of, of some questions were planted there, even though I, I fought them pretty hard at the time. So I have a lot of respect for, for the Jesus Seminar and, and for the tradition that they have, that have carried forward of applying some, you know, some fairly stringent historical methods to um, things that we had up to that point, most of us had just been told to accept things on faith and just, you know, pretty much shuffle on and, and don't think about it too much. So I, I just want to say that I appreciate you guys for that. Thank you. Um, and Brendan and I are so old that, um, that we, we were actually there at that time and, and both basically in the beginning of the Jesus seminar, but Brandon and I are there, but, uh, Erin is much smarter than we because she didn't do all of that. <laughs> but what I would want to say about our work, and Brendan, please jump in um, if you want to think of this a little bit differently. But for me right now, one of the things that happened to us at the, in the Jesus Seminar is it was uh, mostly what we would call a deconstructionist public move in which people, we, we said 80% of the time he didn't say that or he didn't do that. And only 15 to 20% of, oh yeah, that might be him. In the, in this book, uh, what we really came upon was what these early Jesus people did. Yeah. And, and so that is much more what I would call not against uh, deconstruction, but this is reconstructionist. Yeah. In other words, here we have a whole bunch of new things that they did and that they were in many ways different. So, for instance, they resisted the, the Roman Empire. They practiced gender bending. They lived in chosen families, not um, families of, of blood. They belonged to Israel. They had 
diverse organizing structures, not the same. They persisted in oral teachings, not written. So those are the things, in other words, this is what people did, not what they didn't. Yeah. And I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but when looking at something like this, there's there's probably um, more more historical material to go with than than maybe the Jesus seminar had because historical writings about Jesus are are scant. Correct. Well, the, it, there are two different problems. I mean, the, the Jesus seminar was working right, with specific right. so, texts. You know, everything ascribed to Jesus for the first two hundred years. In some ways, that's an easier task than we set ourselves. Because we are trying, we can't reconstruct the history because we don't have a narrative. We don't know the beginning, the middle, and the end. So we end up with a kind of mosaic, painting pictures of all the things we know are going on. And like a mosaic, it's it's impressionistic. And we don't have all the pieces. So do we have them arranged correctly? I mean, that's you have to have a certain humility when you try to do this because you don't have the fixed text that you can say yes or no about. You're, you're really asking a much more subtle series of questions, and it's a harder task. It's, and that's why we thought it was important to, to take this view from, you know, try to look forward and not backwards. Not try to, you're not looking for what, what the fourth century says is important. You're trying to figure out what these people thought was important. Let's talk about resistance then, because you brought, someone brought that up, um, that one of those sort of misnomers, I guess one of the misnomers that, that we get is that this, this early movement of, of Jesus followers in whatever name we want to give them, but that, that they were semi passive, if not completely enough, if not completely passive. But you guys would argue that there was, there was genuine resistance taking place, right? Yes, very much so. Uh, across the the the, the range of, of things, so one of the main things that one sees in the early writings is um, uh, uh, is the fact of a crucifixion. Um, so when I was growing up as a kid, I thought that there was only one guy that got crucified, or maybe three guys with two on either side. Turns out that all of the literature is that hundreds of thousands people were crucified. So when the the Jesus people are uh, thinking about um, Jesus as crucified, it's not that he's unique, it's that he's like someone in everybody's family. Mm. Um, uh, In other words, that's not necessarily they're jumping on board to do it. It's just that the Romans across the board with all the people that they had conquered, all of them were were being crucified. Mm. It, didn't they? Didn't they actually at one point crucify so many people they they ran out of wood, right? Well, uh, a number of times. Yeah. A number of times. So yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, that, that's that was one of those things that you know. I, I remember the first time that I heard something like that because I'm like you. I was, you know, the traditions in which John and I were raised always held Jesus up as very unique in this respect. He suffered like no one else has ever suffered in human history. And I'm like, no, I don't think. No, I mean, first of all, it's not true. I mean, the Romans crucified and tortured and did all kinds of uh, brutal acts. But, but what makes Jesus unique to me is his ordinariness. I mean, the fact that he is subjected to the same kinds of things as as hundreds of thousands of other people were. So that I don't know, and I, I never, I never, that never sat right with me. But so the so the resistance then, you see this in scripture then, right? Where where where. But where they take this theme of crucifixion, right, and then they kind of they kind of adopt it, right? Jesus says, "You have to take up your cross and follow me." Um, Paul talks about, you know, he dies daily or whatever. However, he says that. But so is that is that a form of resistance where they're they're embracing this this ideology, or is it something different? There's several aspects of the resistance. The first one to begin to see is, despite the brutality of the Roman Empire, and it was yeah. brutal and nasty. There's, there's no disagreement about that. I mean, Mary Beard, one of the most important <laughs> historians of the Roman period, she says, you know, they're a yeah. brutal, nasty bunch. And it's true, okay? But they also had, a, they made a major effort once they had conquered people to bring them into the fold, to get them to buy into the values of the Roman Empire. And there were plenty of benefits with Romans, you got baths, you got roads, you got 
lots of things worked, you know. So there was a very important program to kind of bring at least the elites into the values of the empire. Part of the resistance of these groups is they resist the values of the empire. They don't buy into those values. And this is kind of, and you can see this in strange sort of ways. They have a tendency to give Jesus titles that also are imperial titles, but they have the exact opposite meaning when applied to Jesus. So Jesus is viewed as the Lord, which is an imperial title, kurios, but instead of being triumphant, he's the one that gets defeated. Well, that's oxymoronic. That that starts to jar your values in in many, many sorts of ways. And, 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 you know, you have this whole strange thing. He preaches a kingdom that has no king in it. So king is not a title applied very much to Jesus. So you get, in this period, so you get all these kinds of strange and important resistances where they don't go along with the values of Rome. And that's also the people of Israel don't buy into the values of Rome. They've, they've been resistant, resisting to the point of open rebellion. Wow. I think it's important to note that resistance looked really different across these many different groups and schools as well. Um, so there were some groups that, that were more interested in, in fitting in socially and, and not making too many waves. Um, and we can see that kind of stance in a writing like First Timothy, which we might know from the New Testament as we have it today. Um, whereas there were other groups that were much more interested in, in pushing back. And, and what we found that was so cool about these groups is that they really used the, the tools that were around them every day, the different kinds of social um, social norms and, and values that were very much a part of, of empire, but then they, they tested them and, and in many cases subverted them, as, as Brandon noted. Um, something we talk a lot about in the book is gender and how different groups use gender as actually a means of resisting the empire. Gender was understood differently in the first two centuries than it is now, but it's still a concept that did a lot of damage to people. And, and even testing something like masculinity, to be a man was the utmost Roman value. To be a manly was the same as being courageous. It had this whole set of positive values that was essentially being Roman. And some of these groups worked to totally redefine what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be courageous as a a really interesting form of resistance. So um, it's just so fascinating to see how these different groups negotiated life in the Roman Empire in these very different ways. Mm. Is it possible, do you think, that you know, the first century followers of Christ, you know, living as they did under Roman rule and Roman, you know, and um, living in a, you know, in, in that culture, that some of those values um, kind of leaked into them as well and informed the things that they wrote with regards to gender and maybe Paul using a semi-pejorative term about effeminate people and how those get twisted up and right. Give us our clobber passages with which we get to beat up the LGBTQ community. Is there some truth to that or did it just play nicely with the already existing sense of patriarchy that existed within Judaism? Um, Really, I I think uh, one of Aaron's main points here, though, was that they were choosing their gender over against Roman behavior. Right, so their resistance was... is mo- most of the, of that. So, for instance, you've you've got clear texts of women cutting off all their hair, mm. um, and and um, dressing like men. Men being much more uh, um, uh, uh, announcing that they've been beaten. That's not a male thing to do when to announce that you've been defeated or you've been thrown in jail. Um, Paul, all over the place, is, say, is saying time and time again how he was beaten and thrown in jail. Mm. That's the exact opposite of what a man would say about himself. Okay, now that's that's an important distinction then, because yeah, he does he does bring that up quite often. So, so those so those are very, for lack of a better word, they're subtle forms of resistance. Obviously, if you're an occupied people, you're your ability to resist is going to be somewhat limited, right? So you have to be somewhat creative. I had once heard somebody talk about even the even the things that Jesus had told his disciples to do. If 
with regards to turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile could be seen as forms of resistance. Is there is that sort of fanciful or does, do you think there's any historical credence to any of that? Well, there's really good work on that. And for instance, the walk a mile, um, that um, is clear that if you, um, that that is a way of pushing the envelope whether you pick, whether you, whether you do what the soldier said and walk a mile or not, um, th- if you if you get him in trouble if you walk more than a mile. Right. Um, uh, similarly, you've got other things like taxation and enslavement that is happening across the, the spectrum of people who've been conquered. And you see in the texts of of the Jesus people, they are they're really worrying about whether they can pay taxes or not. Mm. Now, similarly, probably somebody in every family has been enslaved. Well, and then you have the issue of people who are serving in the military. I mean, what 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 do you do about that? Are they supposed to continue on, or should they re- renounce their you know their 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 involvement with that? It just seems like there were a whole host of really complex issues that would pop up immediately. The turn the other cheek, there's been a lot of work on these things. To turn the other cheek would mean the person would have to hit you with the back of their hand, which is insulting to the person. So it's really not, it gets interpreted as, you know, some kind of mealy mouth passive. It's taking you on. It's taking the aggressor on by putting that person in a position of insult. So it's a way of shaming them. And the same thing with what Hal was talking about. This Roman soldier can require you to go one mile, but not two miles. If you go the extra mile, he's in trouble. So, I mean, these things have trickier aspects to them when you actually see them in their context than when we rip it out of the context and make it a kind of moral virtue. Right, right. Because that was, you know, it would rip from its context it just sounds like hey just let people beat the hell out of you because that's that's what christians are supposed to do we're just yeah. supposed to let people walk on us that's and not i not what it's about I, at all i i heard somebody articulate those things that you're saying right now and it resonated with me but i'm always i'm always a little dubious you know what i mean okay it sounds right it has the ring of truth it could very well be you know just a well articulated urban legend too so <laughs> well, walter wink worked the scholarship out on those sayings about 30 years ago. Very, it's, it's a very solid piece of work. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I, was, saying, I was thinking of the people who were involved in, in with, I was going through a list of people that were involved with the Jesus Seminar. I'm like, oh, Walter Wink, I forget, and John Caputo. And, you know, there's just like Marcus Borg. And I'm like going through this list of names of like, you guys are in such tremendous company. I, I just, I, I would be starstruck all the time. But, um, <laughs> and I'm sure Marcus Borg would hate that. But um, no, that's, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I like to see those little bits of, of where you can see that the, that the Jesus people resisted in whatever way that they could. Well, I, I, I'm just trying to think of you know other things, whether areas we could go to from this book. And another area that really caught my attention was just the conversation of Paul and um, how, again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it, it seems like where you're saying is that Paul maybe wasn't as important a figure as we seem to have made him out to be now. Specifically within the Western church, it seems like Paul is, is, is equal to Jesus in a lot of, uh, a lot of churches at this time. And I got the, the sense when reading the book that maybe there were certain people who, um, talk about Paul to further they're part of what they consider Christianity. Am I getting that even close to right? Sort of, sort of. So, so uh, one of the main things is that it's, we say, yes, one of the thing that Paul did straightforwardly and got credit for is that he was, he would have these different little groups. He would help them get started. But by the second century, people, uh, uh, the uh, leaders of, of some of these groups are saying, we've read Paul a little bit and we don't quite understand it or we don't like it. He, clearly, he was a person who started the groups. But we're, we're really dubious about whether what he's saying is all that important. Well, then on top of that, we have to call, call, call into question what exactly that we now say Paul wrote. What of that did Paul really write? Yeah, that's always an issue. It's a serious and an important issue. So 
you can't minimize it. <laughs> yeah. But Hal's point, one of the interesting things when you look at the second century is they don't quote Paul. Paul's not, Paul's viewed much more as a church founder than he is as a letter writer or as a theologian. That, that, that just, that's not happening in the second century. Uh, even Martian, who uses Paul a lot, doesn't really quote him a lot. He just has his own odd collection of letters. That's all. And it's kind of, if you read Acts, which we think was written in the early second century, uh, you'd never know he was a letter writer, and you'd never know he was a theologian. He just goes around founding churches. You know, the same thing's true in the pastorals. If you read the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you would never know about justification by faith or the body of Christ. Any of these primary Pauline notions, they're not there. If you look at the Acts of Paul and Thecla, I mean, the author of that thinks what Paul is all about is preaching celibacy. That's about the only thing. So he kind of disappears. He's an important figurehead for those who want to claim they belong to his churches in that tradition. But he's not getting quoted. The letters are not being read. It's really Augustine who moves Paul to the center theologically and makes Paul the kind of center of Western theology. And then Luther, you know, who makes him the center for Reformation theology. But that's not going on in the first two centuries. Well, and it's always, it always strikes me as very interesting whenever I, I, we read a book like this that the, some of the references that come up, some of the um, non-canonical writings come up. And I, to, I, I have never heard of the Acts of Paul and Thecla until I read it in your book. So maybe somebody could kind of talk about these writings and where they originate and why they might have been excluded from our canon of Scripture. I think Aaron and I can... Uh, uh, Combine on uh, the Acts of Paul and Thecla uh, quite a bit, and 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 um, Brandon too. But one for that book, that's probably at the beginning of the second century, and it's almost certain that it was it was read more than almost any of the other stuff. It was it was so popular that some of the um, uh, uh, some of the men wanted to really stop people from reading the Acts of Paul and Thecla because um, uh, it, it, was, um, it was making someone else, and that Thecla being basically a teenager when the story starts, um, a, young, a young woman who, take, who follows Paul into um, leaving her home and being um, on the road um, with a group of other young people who also have to leave their family. And so that is criticized because so many people were following that. But the Acts of Paul and Thecla are popular well into the 6th century. I mean, and Thecla is still a saint in the Orthodox Church, uh, and a big saint in the Orthodox Church, and actually in the Roman Catholic Church. She's in the, yeah. the list. So the other thing is, don't talk about these books as being excluded. We don't know that they were excluded. That, that assumes that there's some kind of conscious process of sorting going on. We don't actually have any evidence for that. We just, the, the canon happens, and we ought to be more honest historically about saying it happens. We don't quite know how. We don't have any evidence of people getting together. And, and I always find it interesting that when, you, when Constantine becomes emperor, he wants to give the big churches, the important churches that he's founding, a Bible. They don't have one. Okay, that's an interesting point. So he commissions Eusebius to make 50 Bibles. Well, the first thing Eusebius has to do is figure out what's a Bible. He has to figure out what goes in, and he has a list of these things, things he thinks are certainly in, things he thinks are certainly not in, and things that he doesn't know whether they're in or not. And it's, it's a kind of interesting list. And when you actually look at manuscripts, we don't get a book in which the contents of, of a Bible agrees with what goes in a modern printed Bible until the 11th century. 
So that these big manuscripts like Bodicanus and Sinaiticus and Alexandrius, they have more or less what's in there, but nothing the same. So, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of important point. To be, it's not nearly as fixed as people want to think. Yeah, no, and that's, you're right about that. I mean, but that's, but we, we desperately want it to be fixed, don't we? I mean, that's so much of, of yeah, give it to me. We want it printed. We, we think yeah. in a printing press mentality, not as how has been saying right. in, a, in an oral context, which is very different. Yeah, I mean, that's that seems to me like, I, and we just talked just amongst, just a, gosh, just amongst modern churches, you know, they have Bibles with differing numbers of books in them, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, the Catholic Church, the, the, the Protestant Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, for that matter, you know, so there's these writings. As John and I realize the older that we get, um, how much of a bubble we lived in, in Western Protestant, evangelical, charismatic, you get down, you know, drill down into the very specific kinds of churches we were raised in. And, uh, and they're, and they're, you know, the, the thoughts on how we view the Bible, what should be in the Bible, you know, and, and, you know, we, one of the reasons we weren't Catholic is we didn't, we didn't read that, that heretical apocrypha, you know, <laughs> so, but it was strange the things that got, the emphasis got placed on the written words so much. So, uh, I think just out of a need for some kind of certainty, right? And I, I you're absolutely right. We do look for this, we do look for the certainty and, and we do look backwards through history so often to find the things that we know today. And, and again, it was, it was our project to, to try to reverse that direction and look forward rather than backwards. There's, um, there's a writing by um, a second century bishop named Irenaeus. And we usually take, well, up to this point in time, we've taken his writings as a kind of confirmation that four gospel writings were really important across the board in um, in the second century. See, he mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so historians have, have looked at Irenaeus and said, yay, look, here's proof that uh, they had what we have now and we can see ourselves in these groups. But if, if you really deconstruct that passage from Irenaeus, um, it's fascinating to note that he, he doesn't use the same words for, they're not even all writings. He, he calls some, some of them are published, some aren't. He doesn't even really refer to Mark as a, he calls Mark a kind of written thing. It's not really a book or anything the way we would think about it. So the, the certainty that we've found in Irenaeus up to this point in time uh, really gets undone. So we, we do have these references to four Gospels. There are many more Gospel texts circulating at this time, but but these weren't texts, they weren't books. And, and even amongst these four that Irenaeus mentions, they're very different kinds of writings and people are interacting with them in different ways. Well, it seems to me that maybe, you know, maybe we're even asking the wrong question when it comes to things like um, what is canon and what's not canon, especially, you know, it, there seems to be a move recently within some churches or some groups to say, maybe it's time that we rethink the canon of the Bible. And is it maybe, is that maybe oversimplifying this idea that we are just, again, we are, are like, uh, like you were saying earlier that the, you know, this idea of excluding isn't really what we're talking about. Um, that wasn't really what was happening. They weren't, it was, a lot of this was oral, right? Not written. So is it maybe more we just have to accept that there's a lot more out there that we just, we haven't been used to seeing or used to reading or used to connecting to what we call canon. Yeah. So I, I wrote a book five years ago, the, an award-winning book um, called A New New Testament, in which we added 10 to it based on uh, a whole year of leaders from across the country this, uh, deciding what what they would add. So yeah, um, so so that that's for another yeah. uh, sh show for you guys. But, um, but yeah. no, that 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 sounds fascinating. <laughs> um, that's really, I mean, that book's still um, uh, um, selling well, and and it's really. Um, Yes, it's really what, what you're looking at, Nate, is, is much more like that. I always wanted to trade two Emily Dickinson poems for the book of Revelations. I, I think <laughs> it really improved the canon. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're on the right track, you know. Um, yeah, as, you know, obviously, um, Luther famously talked about not, not having any, having any love for Revelation without wanting or, it to be pulled out, right? Like you didn't see. 
or James. Yeah, there was, uh, and I, you know, I've, I've even heard arguments, you know, for the book of Hebrews, you know, because authorship is so difficult to pin down and whatever. But, um, you know, that it, it again, it puts to lie, um, any notion that whatever canon of scripture we ended up with is some monolithic, you know, thing that was divinely downloaded and given to us perfectly, right? It, 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 it puts it in much more human terms. Like, hey, this is a human book um, written by human authors, which means we have to read it through their through their lenses as, as best we possibly can. I think that's a beautiful way of, of putting it. And, and there are so many powerful humans in the first two centuries that we haven't really had the opportunity to hear before. They're, they're definitely not human voices that, that I grew up hearing. And, and some of them I didn't discover until I started working with the Jesus Seminar. So voices like um, the creator of the Gospel of Mary. You know, if, I, if I'd had the Gospel of Mary when, when I was growing up and, and I'd had this powerful female leader and, and teacher, you know, I, I, might, I might be very different. So I, I think that it's really important that we open ourselves to these, these different and very, very rich human voices from these early centuries. As you guys keep bringing up, and I think it's very important that we understand is that you're trying to, instead of looking back with our knowledge now and looking back and saying, okay, see how this all works out, you're trying to go and see as if you were looking at it from their point of view. And another, another really interesting part in that for me was all the Gnostics, the Gnostic Gospels, um, and how we have maybe looked at that wrong because of our bias or whatever you want to call it that you know that maybe we need to look at the gnostics not as gnostics at all right that that maybe they are another they, they were just another group of what we would now call the christians or followers of jesus right see it turns out that the word gnostic hasn't really been used at all until the 19th or 20th century. And what was really going on was us, both us scholars and, and, um, and church people, we wanted a name, um, to put all the bad writings in, is, in other words. And so, so that was simply an invite, an invitation to, to do, uh, Orthodoxy again with 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 the, all the new texts who were being just um, um, discovered in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, that didn't seem to be a convenient label to slap on anything you didn't like, right? Well, that's just Gnostic. Right. <laughs> like I remember yeah. the first time I was sitting in the I was back to that class in, at 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 university, and uh, the Gospel of Thomas gets brought up, and you know, oftentimes it's called that's called the Gnostic Gospel, right? Um, and it it brought up all kinds of questions of what is not my, I, I wish to, oh man, I wish I could remember this professor's name. I have to do some research because he was actually very, he was brilliant, but he actually told us at that time, he's like, I don't even know if Gnosticism is a clearly defined anything. You know, it's, it's, it's just sort of a catch all for anything we think of as heretical. This, uh, this chapter that you guys write chapter, um, 13, this inventing orthodoxy through heresy. I was fascinated by that. I'm curious if somebody could maybe just give us a Cliff Notes version of because I think you just touched on it a little bit with the Gnosticism. But. You know, the Greek word heresis just means schools or opinions or groups. And mathetes, which we trans, usually gets translated disciples, gives it a kind of ecclesiastical sounding term, really just means students. And it's one of the most common words these people use to refer to themselves. The, they're forming schools and they think of themselves as students. And one of the students have debates. That's what goes on in a school. Now, these aren't schools in our sense, you know, formal. They're really more like discussion clubs uh, that went on at meals and things like that. And, that. and they're debating these things and trying to understand them. Later, that term turns negative and these, though those groups get defined as heresies as not belonging to the group, you know. But that's not the meaning in the second century. In the second century, it it just means these are debating groups. These are discussion groups. These are schools. Uh, and that, that's a very standard way of, you know, in the Greek world of, of dealing with this material. 
you were talking about the mention of Gnosticism, and uh, one of the wonderful things about the, the last 50 years was the work that Elaine Pagels did with all of these new books that were being discovered. Um, and she, however, in her her first book about it, um, the Gnostic Gospels, did use the word Gnosticism. Um, but she has now decided that she was wrong about that. She was right to bring to the broad public um, all of these new books. But the, the, she no, no longer says the word Gnostic is, is appropriate at all for categorizing those books. Yeah, that's, I mean, why would they then, what particular theme, say, in like the Gospel of Thomas would lend somebody to maybe refer to them in that way then? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a joke. It's simply the first generation of people that found a, a lot of those texts are simply reaching for straws as to what they might quickly put together as a group of heretics. And, and the Gospel of Thomas has a certain mystical strain to it. Uh, but, you know, the gospel, if the Gospel of Thomas is Gnostic, so is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is easily, you know, so, so the category just never made any sense to me. I can remember arguing many years ago with John Meyer about this. He didn't want to use the Gospel of Thomas because he thought it was Gnostic in understanding who the historical Jesus was. I said, well... It's no more Gnostic than John. You don't have a problem with John. Well, John's in the canon. Well, yeah, that solves your problem. But that's not a historical criteria. So historically, they just belong to this kind of mystical tradition. Yeah, that's a, that's a valid part of religion, period. Debate over. Uh, I mean, I just, what happens with a lot of these categories, it's a, it, later in a period, you want to outlaw something because you don't like where it went or it goes against where you are and you're in power. So you get to do that. But that's not going on in the first two centuries. I think you should view the first two centuries, we think, as a period of experimentation. There's lots of experiments going on. And that is really the, one of the critical points to see. Well, yeah, it's, it reminds me too of even like, uh, like, uh, like, like, like the term Marcionite. You know, which seems to have not much. You know, that 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 gets hurled around by by people with you know little understanding of who Martian was. You know, anytime you say anything that they say that they that they that they think sounds heretical, they go, "Oh, you're just a Martian." You know, I'm like, do you? But you know, beyond beyond a rejection of the Old Testament, which I I suppose is partly what Martian Martian argued for. There's so much more to his ideology, but it's just again another, another useful category to sort people in, right? It's not that clear that he rejected right. Hebrew scriptures. It's more that Irenaeus reject, tried to make him say that. Oh, so okay. You have, to, you have to kind of sort that out. The other thing, too, it's very likely without Martian that Paul would have gotten lost. Yeah. In many ways, by the way he constructed his scripture with built around a, a gospel and a group of Pauline letters, Paul gets saved. Paul becomes important. Uh, right. That might not have happened without Martian. Wow. So, yeah, so I think that, he's uh, obviously he's widely misunderstood by most of us because we've all been told to stay away from him because he's a heretic. So don't go, to, <laughs> like, don't read, the, you know, yeah, same with like, you know, someone like Origen. No, 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 don't read. Don't, you know, I was cautioned against reading anything outside the canon of scripture. It's, you know, it's whatever, it is whatever it is, but because they were just so afraid we'd, we'd be uh, corrupted by all these other writings. But eh, jokes on them, I was corrupted anyway. So we're good. So, <laughs> John, my friend, what do you think, buddy? I got to actually have to get going. I think I have to wrap this up myself. So I just wanted to add one thing, and uh, it doesn't really require any kind of answer, I guess. It's just uh, one of the things I took away from, from this book in general. and was this idea where we have all come to this conclusion right, that this was a foregone conclusion that the Christianity that we know today was the only version of Christianity that could have come out of the first and second century. And uh, I think by, uh, I, I think there's some, there's some coincidence and some stuff that's happened that turns what we have today. But I think 
the, the bigger picture is just how much, how much more complex the first two centuries of this Jesus movement really were. And that there were so many different little subcategories or subgroups that were there. And, and we had just pushed them all to the side because they're, like we said, their writings are either Gnostic or heretical or, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that these other writings exist and, uh, to be like intellectually honest and look and look deeper into the stuff other than what your, what your church tells you you have, that you have to read and everything outside of that is not important. Amen. I have one question. I have one question for each of you, maybe as a closing. As people read your book, what is your hope that they come away with? What's the, what are you hoping to impart to people? And we can start with whoever wants to start, but I'm just curious what your, each of your outlooks are on that. I, I just think that what those many groups were doing in the first two centuries is a model, not in terms of the content so much as the, the, the character of many different people doing different things in different groups. That for me is, is, is a beginning to taking apart the, the false orthodoxy base for Christianity in our time. To, to bring it in, I hope that this is a model for diversity. Love it. Awesome. What, what say you, Brandon? Would you concur? Uh, yeah, I concur with that. Uh, to me, th- the great lesson is twofold. One, there's nothing inevitable about way, the way things have to turn out. Uh, Christianity would have never become the major religion of the Roman Empire without Constantine. It would have failed. Uh, and the second thing is experiment, experiment, experiment. You can't figure out what to do if you don't experiment. If you don't experiment, you die. Uh, history requires change. Awesome. I love it. All right, Aaron, you get the last word. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. Um, and I, I am going <laughs> to yeah. echo Alan and Brandon just to say that I hope that readers of this book uh, leave their reading experience with a sense of possibility. For me, the most powerful lesson when writing this book um, with Hal and with Brandon and with all of the wonderful members of the Jesus Seminar was the the immense possibility for life that these diverse groups created under situations of extreme trauma and oppression and violence. They are all a, a testament to how we can come together as communities. Again, these are, um, these are very different communities of people who are looking for ways to connect with one another and not just survive, but thrive under the conditions of empire together. Um, and I think that these groups offer us just such a, a hopeful sense of possibility for how we might make our own voices heard and negotiate the social forms and, and norms that are influencing and, you know, shaping us in all kinds of ways, both positive and negative. Wow. Well said. I love it. I, I, I have come away so far. Um, and I've, I've, I'm about halfway through the book. I'm not as, I'm not as, uh, as, as, um, what's the word I'm committed as John. <laughs> I had, I, uh, I haven't, I, I didn't get through all of it, but partly because I just kept going back and listening to stuff again. I'm listening to it on audio because I'm doing it while I'm at work and other places. And I'm like, and I have to stop and go, okay, go back and listen to that again. That was, that was really interesting. I, 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 I have come away so far with that sense of, of possibilities as well. Like I, I do love the idea that um, we're challenging the notion that there was some Again, some monolithic entity called the Christian church, you know, immediately upon Jesus's death. And we have, you know, and rather we have this, this rather diverse group of people trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. I don't think what we have today is, is much different. We have a bunch of people trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And some of them are embedded in structures and things that are not healthy or good. And some of us are trying to push against that to rediscover you know, what it means to authentically follow Jesus today. And this offers an awesome window um, into what that possibly could have looked like. You know, maybe there's something that was taken from us that we could reclaim in our history that says, hey, this, this, like you said, nothing's inevitable. So I, I, I love it. I, I come away very hopeful and I'm, I'm 
eagerly anticipating finishing the book today or tomorrow and, and diving into this with my church and seeing what they think about it. So I, I appreciate you guys and your willingness to come on and, and talk to a couple of weird bearded guys yeah. and uh, um, give us your time <laughs> so generously. We really appreciate that. If you guys are who are listening um, have not done so, go to where you buy all your books and buy a copy of this book. I think it's a I think it's a must read for anyone who is even honestly even mildly interested in in some church history especially church history that has not been taught very very regularly so for john and myself we appreciate yeah. you guys thank you for uh for thanks so much absolutely appreciate you guys thank you for listening to this is not church be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice if you would like to partner with us visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.